Well, we finally made it. The 50th chapter of the book of Genesis. So if you'd turn there, our final study here in this amazing book before we move on to the book of Daniel. And tonight, the tale of three coffins. We, we find in this final chapter actual two uh, actual deaths and burials. And then there's one that probably... Um, is the most important, which is figurative. And that for each of us is the ability to bury our past. To let go of those things which are behind and to press on towards that high calling that we have in Christ Jesus. And nowhere in the Old Testament is that principle more visible than in the life of Joseph. If ever there was a man that should have carried bitterness and anger hurt, pain, uh, those emotions that we would associate with abuse, um, unfair things happening to somebody just time after time after time again, that would be Joseph. And yet we find here in Genesis chapter 50 uh, this beautiful Old Testament picture uh, of what should be everyone's uh, top 10 list of verses, Romans 8, 28, for God works together to the good, all things for those who are called according to his purposes. You, you see, God doesn't just use positive things in our lives. God uses negative things in our lives. God not only uses what we would call negative things, he actually uses excruciatingly difficult, painful horrific things in our lives ultimately for his plans and purposes which because he is good those things that he rots with them are also good and so while the things themselves when we're going through them should never be diminished there's a place for sorrow there's a place for pain there's a place for anguish in the life of every believer in fact paul writes that we share with christ the fellowship of suffering I have met not a single person yet that at some point in time has not been through something that was unfair, unplanned, unwarranted, that when they look on it, they, they don't, at the time that they go through it, understand why the Lord allowed that in their life or why the Lord may have even purposed that in their life. But I can tell you this, there is a gracious and good God in heaven who absolutely uses every experience that we ever go through ultimately for his plans and purposes. He gets us to places we wouldn't otherwise go. He moves us in ways that we cannot be moved in any other fashion. He does things to us in developing our character, even our emotions. He, he works in our lives through difficult things in a way that I think sometimes we have to actually acknowledge I'm not sure there was another way that God could accomplish, even in my own life, a deepening of my compassion towards human beings were it not for the fact that I myself have been abused. If I hadn't been through the experiences that I've been through, if I'd not lived the life that I've lived up to this point, if I've not gone through the painful things, especially those things as a child, just unwarranted in the life of any child, that I know that the Lord would have not worked all that good that he's done in my own life apart from those things. That is the tool that he used 
to work together a tremendous good even in my own life. And so tonight, the tale of three coffins, we're going to bury a couple of people and we're going to bury Joseph's past along with it in between. So would you join me? We'll pray. We'll pick up here in verse 1 of Genesis 50. Father, thank you. Lord, I thank you for the work that you've done in my own life and my own family, God, through the things that you've allowed us to go through that have hurt, they've been painful, uh, they weren't good in and of themselves, but because they rested in the hands of a good and gracious God, you worked them together to beautiful things, Lord, even through the pain, through the suffering, through the sorrow. And so, God, we ask that you would speak to us tonight through your word. Lord, would our time be rich because you have met us here. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Verse 1, And then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants and the physicians to embalm his father. And Jacob is passed on. Israel is gone. And so the phys- physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who were embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. And so you can see that even in the land that is governed by those who do not have a relationship with the true and the living God, the Egyptians were uh, not worshiping the God that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob worshiped. But so powerful was the testimony of Joseph that it affected even how they viewed the death of his father. And this is a very powerful lesson for us, that when we live our lives for the Lord, we live our lives correctly, rightly, uh, putting God first in everything, it spills over onto the world around us. And the world takes notice. And even those without Christ see the value uh, of those of us who live for the Lord. Uh, On my way home from church this afternoon as I was leaving after third service I was tuning into a radio broadcast and actually there was an interview um, of a man and I don't know his place in the kingdom I'm not sure whether he's saved or not saved but it was interesting because he echoed a thing something I said this morning uh, during our services and he said we definitely need the government to do their job but more than anything We need people of faith to rise up in our land and to live out their faith because they are the ones that actually have the answer. Now, he may have been generalizing that to include all faiths, but the fact of the matter is, we who believe in the Lord Jesus do have the answers to the things that pain the world. And even someone who's in the government, whose job it is, to ferret out terrorists, whose job it is to research these horrific crimes, whose job it is to try and make sense out of a senseless act, recognize that the ones who have the answer are actually the ones who have faith. That was visible in Joseph's life, and it was his father that had passed away, and so the world took notice. The Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. And now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh. 
saying, If we have now found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. And in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. He's making an appeal to Pharaoh. It's, in essence, the last wishes uh, of Jacob, of Israel. And now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And I want you to notice something. Let's say for a moment that you had been taken captive. I mean, some of you, I'm sure, were around in 1979 uh, when we had 52 hostages were taken captive by the Iranian uh, National Guard, effectively. It was, it was known as the, the force that watched over Ayatollah Khomeini. And they spent about 540 or so days in captivity. And I remember when they were released, um, most of them very gaunt, most of them had been abused. It was a very, very difficult situation because they had been taken captive and they were in a foreign country and they were not treated well. I cannot even imagine any one of those captives having come back to the United States simply because they made a promise to the Ayatollah in Iran, if you will let these people go, I will come back, that they, anyone would have actually come back. Because they had escaped, finally, this torturous life that they had lived. That's the situation for Joseph, except Joseph was there for two and a half decades. And while he was a prince in the court of Pharaoh, he was still also a prisoner in the court of Pharaoh. And while he had some freedom, he didn't have all of his freedom. But when you have the integrity of Christ, when you have the integrity of God in your life, then your yes is yes, and your no is no, and people in the world take notice of that fact. And so Joseph says, look, I, I swear that if you let me go bury my father, I will come back. And so powerful was his life lived, the testimony of his life, that Pharaoh believed that he would keep that word, and he does. And so Joseph went up to bury his father and went with, with him up all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his house and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all of the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house, their little ones, their flocks, their herds, and they left the land of Goshen. And there they went up with him, both in chariots and horsemen. And it was a very great gathering. And when they had come to the threshing floor at Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they mourned there with great and very solemn lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this deep mourning of the Egyptians, this is what this is. And therefore, they called its name Abel Mirasim, which is beyond the Jordan. And so the sons did for him just as he had commanded. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite 
as his property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt and he and his brothers and all who went up there to bury his father. And so you have this picture of this very long funeral procession. Uh, It likely, if they moved quickly, would have taken at least a couple of weeks to travel from the land of Goshen, the Nile River Delta, uh, to Mamre, which is in modern-day Hebron. Uh, There's a city in the south of Israel. Today it is still inhabited, and today there is still the tomb of Abraham, and it's also the location uh, that Jacob is buried as well. And sometimes, you know, when you talk to people about death, that is an unpleasant subject for most people. But it's also one of the most common things that we will face in our human existence. I know of very few people have not been touched at some point in time by death itself. I once asked you, we were kind of debating back and forth, and I asked him, you know, because we were, we were kind of talking about some crime statistics and things that were going on. And I just asked him a simple question. I said, so what's the death rate here in the city? And he looked at me and he said, one each. That's the death rate in every city. It's one each. We're all destined at some point in time. We're actually appointed. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9 says there in verse 27, that it has been appointed for men once to die and after this, the judgment. In other words, We're all going to one day, whether you believe or do not believe, everyone is going to ultimately stand before God. And we're going to give an account. And those who are in Christ, uh, just as verse 28 says there in Hebrews 9, uh, Christ offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await uh, wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin for salvation. In other words, to those of us that have committed our life to Christ, when I see Jesus, it's going to be a really good thing. To those who do not know him, it's going to be the most terrifying moment in all of their, his, their history. It will be the moment where he, he will say to them, depart, for I've never known you. But every person one day will be appointed that time. And, and whether that's by your human natural cause uh, as we look at it in other words uh, we use that phrase that person died of natural causes there was something going on in their life sometimes we say well just died of old age whether it's old age or whether it's a car accident now whether it's cancer whether it's some form of disease whether it's you you simply live a long time and finally pass uh, every one of us is going to stand before the lord And that time had come in Jacob's life, in Israel's life. And so as you you look at this, you have to kind of ask yourself, are you ready for that appointment? Because in Joseph's life, he was very clearly prepared for this moment. It didn't catch him by surprise. He wasn't thinking it wasn't going to happen. He understood perfectly Uh, that that what we know is a New Testament truth, that whatever we do, we do heartily unto the Lord. Uh, I live my life kind of in that that fashion that means that I know one day I'm going to leave this earth. As I've gotten older, it's it's been easier to think on those things. When you're young, you're you're like, well, I want to get married, I want to have kids, I want to fulfill my dreams I want to and all those are all wonderful thoughts by the way I don't want to kill anybody's joy here but as you get a little older you realize it's like well 
this could be the last car we buy, honey. This might be the last home we live in. Um, This may be the last time we go there or do this or see this or see that. You, You start to think in terms, if you really love the Lord, you probably ought to be thinking that way if you have the right view because for us, the departure, just exactly as Scripture says, the departure of saints is actually a blessed thing before the Lord. Psalm 116, 15 says that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. And so one day we've all got an appointment with Jesus. That time had come for a very beloved father. Whatever you've done in this life, if you're a believer, you're going to receive reward for those things which are good. And in fact, the very last book of the New Testament, the last book of the Bible, uh, almost the book's almost over. It says, behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. We all have a date with destiny. Stand before the Lord Jesus. And in the case of Joseph and his family, these brothers, because of who they were, because of what they believed, they could face that time with absolute certainty. And while they're mourning, as they should, and we're going to take a look at two burials and, that are real and, and one figurative. So the first thing that we see in this is this coffin that's for a beloved father. It's a solemn scene. Jacob really doesn't have anything else to say. And it's like he goes to bed and he's gone. Um, I pray that for everyone. You know, one of the things that, that I, you know, think about so very, very often when I'm called to go to the hospital or go make a visit to someone that I know is terminally ill, one of the prayers that I almost always pray, Lord, if this is your will, would you please allow them to simply go to sleep and wake up in heaven? And it appears that's exactly what happens to Jacob. He just nods off and he's there with Abraham uh, in Abraham's bosom. If you look at this story, you, you now have the nucleus of the nation Israel. The founder is gone, so we had Abraham, we had Isaac, and now we have Jacob. So we have all three of the main patriarchs if you will, of, of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are now in Abraham's bosom, waiting exactly as we discussed this morning there in Luke chapter 16. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 11, I want to take a look at this. We'll pick up in verse 13. And all that's going on here is the same thing that's going to go on for everyone who has an appointment with the Lord. Um, we're going to do an exchange. We're going to change in our earthly tent for a mansion in heaven. And while at this time, because Jesus has not yet died, um, there's an interesting passage while you're turning to the book of Hebrews. In in Ephesians chapter 4, we get a picture of exactly what happened. Because it says there towards uh, the end of Ephesians chapter 4, actually the middle, verses 8 through 10, that what happened in Jesus' life was this. That he first descended before he then ascended. And that when he descended... He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And and then it answers the question, well, who is this he who ascended? It is he who descended into the lower parts of the earth. 
In other words, the Lord himself, when Jesus said, it is finished, when he gave up the ghost, we actually know where he went for those three days. He went to Abraham's bosom and said, the price has been paid. The debt's been canceled. It's all good. And he emptied Abraham's bosom. So Abraham's bosom, which was the place where the righteous dead resided in this place ultimately totally called Sheol or the abode of the dead, one side now is empty, but there's still another side. It's the place where the rich man is still to this day awaiting judgment. Your Bible in Luke 16 calls that place Hades. Verse 13 Speaking of these patriarchs, all these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them far off and were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, They would have had opportunity to return, but now they desire better. That is a heavenly country, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, what Abraham hoped for, what Abraham lived in expectancy of, was that one day he was going to leave Abraham's bosom this place that was temporary, this place that the thief on the cross knew as paradise, because what did Jesus say to him? He didn't say, today you'll be with me in heaven. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Same exact Greek word that we find in Luke 16. So that thief went there, and in a few moments' time, here comes Jesus. Time to go. Heading home. You know me. It's time to get out of this place we're going to heaven. And so now, what we've learned in Second Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The price is paid. Now you go straight into glory to see the Lord. And so when you look at this, we see some steps. And the first thing we see is, is how to deal with grief. You know, I'm amazed sometimes that Christians actually seem to think that we shouldn't have grief. Grief is God's remedy, I think, for the deep pain in our soul. And I believe God not only has allowed grief, but he's placed grief into our lives to release those negative emotions which, if stirred up, will destroy you, will damage you, will cause you to actually be physically harmed, emotionally harmed, and mentally harmed. There's a place for grief, and we see that. It's a reality. Pain exists, even for we who love the Lord. Sometimes I think ignorantly, well-meaning, but often misguided Christians begin to talk to people who have lost a loved one in a way that you almost think they don't care. It's like, well, you know, he's in heaven. Well, that's true. But it doesn't mean that we don't grieve. The difference is we grieve differently. Amen? 
Just exactly as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, but we still grieve. It still hurts. It still is painful. We still miss those people. There is a void. There's a hole in our life. And we are supposed to be able to express that grief. The good news is for those of us who express that grief that way is that we also have heaven to look for. If that person that we've lost is a believer, then you have a reunion coming. But we still grieve. We still go through those emotions that no doubt Joseph and all the brothers are going through. Why? Because death is still our enemy. It's been defeated. It's an enemy that ultimately has lost, but it's still our enemy. When someone's suffering through cancer and they're dying a very slow death, you can't look at them and go, well, cheer up, brother, you're going to heaven. But I've honestly witnessed people say things like that. And it's unkind. There is a place for grief in the life of a believer. And we have to deal with it. This is the sixth time that we see Joseph weeping. And the word that's used here means he's weeping loudly. He's not sitting over there kind of sobbing a little bit under his breath. He is uncontrollably weeping. And he fell on his father. I mean, you you can picture this. His dad is gone and he's on his dead father's body sobbing. That, that is healthy. That's expressing grief. God gave you the emotions that you have. And we need to allow those emotions to be governed by God. That's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. But don't think there isn't a healthy place for the emotion of grief. And when you have the opportunity to help somebody through a time of grief, it's one of the most precious things you can do as a believer. I will tell you straight up, it is not any fun to do hospital visits when you go and you know somebody's about to take a step out of time and into eternity and the whole family's there. There are no words. Pastors don't have magic words for that moment. There aren't things that we just pull out. It's like, man, this will make this feel better. No, there's just grieving. And sometimes the best thing you could do is just simply be there and do what they're doing, which is to cry with them, to allow them to cry on you. I've messed up more than my share of shirts. You know, just all I can do is just tell you that God loves us and this hurts and it feels terrible right now. And I just want to be there with you. God expects us to weep. Have you ever wondered why you have tear ducts beyond the ability to keep your eyes uh, moist so that they don't dry out, so that your lenses stay in their correct shape? There's, there's more than adequate tears in your tear ducts for you to be able to express emotion through them. They're there for a reason. God didn't make a mistake. He's like, oh, they're overflowing. In my time in ministry, I watch people suppress grief. And it rarely has a good result. It very often makes them uh, end up in an emotional place that is not just unhealthy, but actually destructive. As John Kebble once said, he's a tremendous poet and pastor. He says, perhaps, perhaps the best gift that God has ever given given to suffering man is tears. 
just allows you to release those emotions before the Lord. A second thing we see here is them making a preparation for the inevitable. Again, and I, I want to share with you from the heart of a pastor. When someone is gone, it's the wrong time to try and make preparations for them being gone. I've sat with so many families and talked them through things that should have been discussed as a family years before. Let me be blunt with you. There is nobody in this room who's going to live forever. We all have a date with the Lord. And to pretend that it's not going to happen is going to create extra stress at a time that is already supremely stressful. And so the time to make preparations, as we can see in the life of Joseph, is before the preparations are necessary. We, we don't see Joseph scrambling around and trying to figure out what he was going to do in this moment. He had made preparations for his father's death. I want to strongly encourage you. Some things that we do in our day and time. Create a living will. Make sure you have a last will and testament. Spell, spell out any of those things that you wish done uh, when you do leave. Uh, make sure if you are one of those people like myself, I, if I've got something terminal, I have a DNR. That's a do not resuscitate order. I, I want to make sure, I don't, I don't want them shocking me back. If I'm halfway in heaven, please leave me there, okay? But if you don't take care of those things before that event comes then you're going to end up having to suffer through what is extremely painful because you have to make that decision while that person is in the throes of death. And that is infinitely harder than before that day comes. If you make that decision before, you can talk to them and say, what would you like, Dad? What would you like, Mom? How would you like us to make that preparation? Talk about those things. Nobody's going to escape it. So you can pretend it's never going to happen and you're just simply going to make it more stressful when it does because it will. And so we see Joseph making some private instructions for the burial of his father and, and making some public instructions to the sons on how this is to be carried out. And I want you to notice something. They avoided having the pagan rulers of Egypt take care of this for them. If you don't want the government involved in your family's finances, then make sure you have a living trust. If you don't want the government coming to you and saying, sorry, you can't do that, then take care of it ahead of time. We see this in the life of Joseph. Now, it's not exactly the same. He's dealing with the Egyptians, and we're dealing with the federal and state and local governments. But the principle's the same. Because they took care of it ahead of time, they have the government's permission. If you don't take care of it ahead of time, you may have to fight the government to even keep the resources that your parents left to you. So please make preparations. Joseph did that. A second, a third thing that we see here is take care to do what's right. Notice that we don't see Joseph fighting the Egyptians. He's actually asking for permission. He's actually going and doing things correctly. 
he, he's, he's honoring even the Egyptians who are not believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of that, his testimony remains pure. He's not compromising in anything he's doing. He, he's actually doing things the right way. And when you do that, you have the opportunity to share with people that don't already believe in the Lord. But when you try and work the system, you try and game it a little bit, you try and go through the back door, you do things the wrong way, they want nothing to do with our Jesus. The world then looks at us and says, why would I trust you? You're just as dishonest as the person who does not know the Lord. And so do things right. Do it above board. Take care of those things. When this time comes for you, he even ends up with the kind of recognition that's reserved for important people like Pharaoh himself. That's how well thought of Joseph is in this land. And I pray that we are thought of that way in the world. Again, Egypt being a type of the world. You kind of may ask yourself the question, why didn't Joseph use the, or go to the court officials himself and speak personally? Maybe he was by some religious right deemed unclean or something we don't know but as a father to pharaoh joseph asked permission he didn't just demand it he didn't say give me this i've served you all these years he actually asked permission and when you do that the world just so takes notice that's character that's impeccable and finally, we see him paying a, what we would call final respect, except for the very smallest children. They're all going to make this very difficult, hard journey uh, back to Canaan. And this is, this is not like our world. This was really, really difficult. Uh, they weren't all packed into, you know, like tour buses. Um, they, they weren't going, you know, flying from Cairo, Egypt, and landing in Ben-Gurion Airport in Israel and you know, driving in a motorcade, they were going down dirt paths, not even dirt roads, but dirt paths with chariots. And this was going to take a couple of weeks. And so you, you can see someone paying final respects. They're actually being respectful of the life and the legacy uh, of this man. And I, I think for me personally as a pastor... It's become a little bit painful to watch how little respect we have for other people's grieving. Sometimes it, it, it's like, you know, well, it's no big deal. And, and Christians are guilty sometimes of inadvertently, I think, I'm not saying that everyone wants to hurt everyone who's going through a difficult time, but we don't take the time to pay final respects. We don't go to that person because it's a painful, awkward moment. And so we just choose to not go. In fact, I have talked to so many men who refuse to go to memorial services because they don't want to cry publicly. I don't know if there's anything better you can do than go cry publicly. Go shed some tears for somebody else's pain. That's what Jesus did for us. He wept for us. And we can weep for others. When somebody's going through something tough, be there for them. We're all on the way to the grave. It ought to bring us together. It's one of those things that we can come together as humanity and say, I may not be going through that this week, but you are. 
but I may be going through it next week and I might need you to come comfort me so let's do this thing together as hard as it is. This was Joseph's first trip back to his homeland in 39 years. And it was to bury his dad. That's a man of character. And I pray that's the type of character that we have. The second coffin, and I think in a practical way, this is the more important one. It's figurative. Because we see something happening here as we pick up in verse 15 down through verse 21. And a passage here that should become a favorite to all of you. It's a coffin in which we can bury our past. It is absolutely true that you can't change the past, but you can bury it. The past is the past, but you can put it someplace to where you're not dwelling on it every day, to where it is part of the past and it's a rational part of your past. I, I worry about people who try and you know, somehow get rid of their past because you can't but it can become part of your distant memory to where it becomes an important part of what you were that not only does God do something with but he can even do something good with it let's pick up in verse 15 and when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead they said perhaps Joseph will hate us now you can kind of understand why he says that they have been contributing factors to the early demise, even though he's now 110 years old, of, of Jacob, of Israel. These sons have made this man's life really difficult. And you imagine the stress. You know, we, we, we don't often think about it, but stress is one of the number one contributing factors to heart disease. Stress is one of those things that kills probably as many people as most other things that we think are major causes of death. Stress can absolutely take you out. And if there was ever a family that lived in stress, it's this one. And may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. That's an honest admission of exactly how they had treated their brother. And again, that's actually right thinking. They have a reason to think that way, but they surely underestimate the grace of God in Joseph's life, don't they? And so they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of God servants of God of your father and Joseph wept when they spoke to him and I love I love where this goes because this is the power of God at work in our lives the truth of the matter is there are probably an awful lot of people in this room who've been in this situation at least figuratively you've been through something where you absolutely have right if you will because of what happened to be angry bitter hateful resentful filled with evil thoughts thoughts of retribution you want your pound of flesh because someone took a pound from you 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 have the, the the right thinking in that it was wrong but this is the right way to handle it 
This is how we truly are able to get past our past. This is how we bury it. This is how you pack your past up and you stick it in a coffin and you bury it. You don't forget it. You know where it's buried. You know that it was painful. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't even completely cause restoration to occur, but you can put it in the right place. And it needs to be buried as part of your past. I know so many people who are so anchored to their past that they can't move an inch into their present. And they're never going to get to their future that God wants because they are weighted down by the stuff of the past. They're carrying around a sack of rocks and they're dragging those rocks wherever they go. And those rocks are very often called bitterness and hate. They're called pain and anguish. They're called the experiences of life that have hurt you. And in that sack, which has become so heavy, it gets so weighted down, it gets to the place to where it's now become an anchor. It's not just heavy and hard to drag around. It's an immovable object. And we see here in the life of Joseph exactly what has to happen. Joseph wept. And then his brothers also went and fell down before his face and they said, Behold, we are your servants. This is genuine repentance. This is a type of thing when the person who is wronged does not show anger but shows hurt shows the right kind of pain. Says, look, it it hurts and I'm sorrowful, but I'm more sorrowful that it has hurt our relationship than I am sorrowful about the things that you did. I'm more destroyed over it destroying our relationship than I am over you destroying me. I am more hurt by how it has hurt our relationship than what you did to me. The stripes that I have are nothing compared to the damage that's been done to our relationship. And when you show that type of empathy towards someone, it's life-altering. When you actually speak to someone who has deeply hurt you in a way that they can see that your hurt is genuine, that you're not just angry at them, but you're actually pained. It gets right to the heart. It it does the work that needs to be done. Look, the truth is, most of the things that happen to us in life, you're never gonna completely square away all of them. Probably all of us have backlogs of the things in our lives that we'd like to see done differently. Amen? Amen? You'd go back and you'd probably alter more than half of your life in some way, shape, or form if you thought that it could relieve you of the pain and the burden of your past. But the fact is you can't do that. You're not going to be able to fix every relationship. But you can choose what you do with the pain that's come from that relationship. You can say, look, I'm not letting this control me any longer I'm going to release those emotions and I'm going to say to that person, look, it's okay. It doesn't make what they did okay. It doesn't even fix the problem. But you, when you release those emotions to the Lord and say, God, 
I'm just letting, I'm putting this in a coffin and I am burying it. I'm putting it six feet under and I'm not going to dig it up anymore. It's dead to me. Here's what happens. Verse 19, underline it, verse 19 and 20. And Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for I am in the place of God. And I want you to understand what's being said there in the Hebrew language. I am in the place that God put me. Uh, I, I wasn't here by mistake. You may have thought you sold me into slavery, but all along, God had his hand on my life. I am in the place of God. May have not been exactly how he wanted me to get here, but I was going to be here whether you sold me into slavery or not. This is a man who's so convinced that God is at work in his life that he's able to look at these painful, horrible things and go, you know what? God's in this. God's going to do something great with it. Do not be afraid, for I am in the place of God. But as for you, look how rational he's being. This is not somebody who's just going, well, you know, whatever, man. This is completely, totally rational in his thinking. Look, I know you could put you could interject there. It's not in the original language, but I know you meant evil against me. He just simply says, you meant evil against me. He, he says it as a statement. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Was that like blow your mind? You meant evil for me. No, you, you legit sold me into slavery. You totally took the jacket and put a dead animal's blood on it and you tortured our father with it. Joseph is not sitting there going, well, you know, it, I know you meant well. No, they didn't mean well. They meant hell. They, they didn't mean good. They meant evil. But I want you to know where he turns with that evil. He turns directly to the Lord. Brothers, you absolutely meant evil, but you're not bigger than God. You're not stronger than God. You don't have control over this universe. He does. God meant it for good. And then he says the reason. In order to bring about as it is this day. What he's saying is, I would go through every last bit of that past if it would get us to here. I'd go through the whole thing over again if it would get us to here. Connie and I have sat down and talked about our life. And there have been some things that it's like, mm, not sure I'd want to repeat. But I can honestly say we've also had the conversation. It was worth it. It was worth it. It got us here. It brought us to this place. It took us from where we were to where we are. And it doesn't mean that there weren't painful things and hurtful things. But God meant it for good to bring about this result, this place that you now are. Now, I don't know how that is for each of you. I know how it is for us, the Gill family. This is true. 
You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, in a rational sense, you're going, couldn't have God done this some other way? The answer is yes, God's God. He could have. But when you think about God working in the lives of people, you have to imagine that simultaneously God is working together to the good the lives of currently nearly 7 billion people simultaneously. And so he's got a few things to concern himself with that you probably aren't thinking about. And so what he does, he does for a good we can't even see. He sees a path through. For those of you that have read Homer's Odyssey, can you, if you've ever seen the Alps, specifically the Dolomite Alps in Italy, and you've, you've been on that side of the mountain, when you stand on the ridge overlooking Cervino, and you're in Zermatt, and you're looking down, the thought of bringing elephants up there is like there is no way in the world elephants are going over the Alps. Your life is like that. Your life is filled with elephants that somehow God can clear a path through the most steep, inaccessible mountain ridges of your emotions and your circumstances of life, and he can move elephants over your mountains. That's what God does. He's in the business of moving things that look like they're immovable and doing things that look like they're undoable. And he does that. Notice what is said. To save many people alive. Who did he save alive? The lineage of the entire Jewish people. The 12 tribes are going to be saved because of what happened to Joseph. Because he was sold into slavery. Because he ends up in a place able to take care of their great need in a time of famine that no doubt God foresaw. And so never get to that place to where you look at your life and go, God hates me. You're you're a walking Romans 8.28 for God works together for the good, those who love him. All things he works together for the good. Not just some things. Even death. Burials. And there's some things that happen. The, the alarm of your heart goes off and you, you get afraid. You run through all the scenarios that could possibly happen. But while that alarm is going off, God's not alarmed. God's not going, oh, I don't know what to do now. That's you, that's me. That alarm in your heart goes off. It went off in these brothers' lives. They're going, man, he's gonna kill us. But that's not God. God is going, I got this. And then God begins to gently appeal to our souls. Starts to speak truth into our life. You know, these brothers are sitting there going, he's going to kill us. They were afraid to approach Joseph. Their father's dead. They're thinking, wow, the only thing that was keeping us alive was dad was alive. They're, well, now Joseph's going to be in charge. We're we're toast. 
And aren't you glad God is kind? God is gentle. He's good all the time. Jacob had actually interceded for these guilty kids. They were thinking, well, I don't know, Joseph would have done the same thing. But the same God that was at work in Jacob's life and Israel's life was at work in Joseph's life. God's got it. And he is gentle. He cares for our souls. We see just a sense of quiet assurance as you, as you look at verses 18 to 21. Just like the prodigal son. You know, sometimes it's hard to accept the goodness of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that then in Luke 15, but here's this, this son who's squandered his whole life on reckless living. He's slopping hogs. He, he was the son of a king. And that king wasn't sitting back at home going, man, I'm going to kill that boy when he gets home. If I ever see him, it's over. I'm cutting him out of the will. He's done. What did the father do? The father got naked is the inference in scripture. He hoisted up his tunic, tied it at his waist, exposing himself to the whole world so that he could run down the road and meet his son whom he thought was dead. That's who God is to us. He's not mad at you. He desperately longs for your life to have fulfillment and meaning and for you to be back in the fold and for him to have care over you. He is running to you. These brothers saw Joseph from the world's perspective, but Joseph saw them from God's perspective. God's perspective is he's always looking to restore. He's always looking to reconcile. He, he's, he, he treats each one of us like the woman at the well, the tax collector in the tree, the thief on the cross. We have to just simply be divested of our pride to where we can just go, God, I was wrong. Thank you for being good to me. Thank you for forgiving me. God knows what he's doing in your life. He knows what he's allowing in your life. He knows where you're going. He understands what's, he understands what's going to happen when you get there. And so in that sense, God sees you because he's buried your sins in the depths. Just as Micah 7 says, God's buried your sin in the depths of the sea. God's not over there with a fishing pole trying to pull your sins back out of the sea. He's not. He doesn't have a net. He, he's not down there in the bottom of the ocean. Well, if you ever mess up, your sins are coming back. No, they're gone. He doesn't see him that way. Joseph is living that way. He's saying, look, guys, we, we don't see him confessing his part in this. But if you remember, he was kind of a little bit arrogant at first, wasn't he? He has this dream. He's like kind of a little, he's like the little young punk all jacked up on his pride. You know, it's like, yeah, well, you guys are going to bow down to me. So what up? You know? <laughs> throwing signs and stuff. Isaiah 38 says that God has cast your sins, your problems, your weakness behind his back. 
Isaiah 43 says he's blotted them out. He remembers them no more. And you see, when you understand who God is, then you can leave your situations in God's hands. But if you don't understand who God is, then you think of your situations with your mind, not in view of God's character. And we have to think of how God thinks of us the way he actually thinks of us. And he loves us. And he wants only good for us. And so our old life has been buried. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And then finally, in closing, we see a coffin for a very special brother. This man that a majority of the last eight chapters have been his life here in the book of Genesis, verses 22 to 26. And so Joseph dwelt in Egypt. He and his father's household And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. In other words, he saw a whole bunch of grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids. And Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying. Just like his father. It's interesting as I, Connie and I are blessed that we have, our parents are, all four are still alive. All four, Connie's dad is 90. My parents are both getting there, close to 90. And Joseph said, look, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you. This is a man who knows the Lord, the character of the Lord. God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land because they're still, where are they at? They're still in Egypt, amen? So he's looking forward to the book of Exodus. Out of the land of Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. And then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, surely God will visit you and you should carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And so we see some final things. We see the work of the Lord restore a broken family. If you want to see a broken family restored, this is the path. It's not trying to figure out all the bits and pieces and parts. It isn't trying to put all the pieces back together back there in your past. The fact of the matter is, people sin. People do hurtful, harmful things. And we probably will never live long enough to see all of them rectified. But we can choose what we do with that brokenness. I can select out of my own life the things that God has done and say, look, I'm going to lead with these things. I'm not going to lead with the hurt. That hurt's not going to be my identity anymore. I refuse to be governed by my past, weighted down by my past. I can choose to see a restored family just like Joseph does. Joseph was 17 years old when he was taken to Egypt. 17. He's now going to pass away at 110. He, He lived for 93 years after he was taken into captivity. 51 of them, basically half of his life, was lived in the fullness of God's plan. 
but also half of his life was lived in Egypt. So you kind of see a little bit of, a, of how we ought to view life. So you're probably going to have a 50-50 proposition, Egypt and the good things of the Lord. Not every day is going to be beautiful. Not every day is going to play out the way you think it's going to play out. Don't be upset by that. Recognize that after we live this life, the great equalizer actually is heaven. But God is so good that he even restores while we're still here. And we see this man become a grandfather and a great-grandfather. And he's going to even adopt Manasseh's grandchildren. Second thing we see is the family's faith is restored. And by faith, Hebrews eleven twenty two says, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Joseph said, look, I want you to do what I did for my dad, for our dad. I want you to carry me out of here. Let's do this thing together. And he did that by faith, believing that those instructions were going to be carried out just exactly as he had done so for his own father. You see, real faith does real works. Exactly what James chapter 2 reminds us of. Joseph didn't resort to excuses. He, He didn't reject God's promises. He's used to restore the family's faith. And finally, he he tells them the one thing that we all need to hear. God's got a future for you. There's a Jeremiah 29, 11 promise for every person in this room. For those of us who love the Lord, God's thoughts towards you are good. They are not evil. There are future and a hope and plans to prosper you. That's God's plans for your life. That's a promise. That's not like a wish. That's like, well, for some people it's like that. No, for every one of God's kids, that's the case. Now, how that looks in each of our lives, I can't tell you specifically what God's plans are to prosper you. I just simply know, as Joseph echoes here, what God's word says. That's the promise that's been made. And God did give them a future, and God did give them hope, and God is going to preserve them even when Pharaoh goes nuts. Pharaoh goes crazy. Isn't going to listen to Moses. He's going to wander through those plagues and he's going to get to the plague of the death of the firstborn. He's finally going to say, okay, go. And where are they going to go? They're going to go from the frying pan to the fire. Amen? They're going to go from in Egypt under Pharaoh to the wilderness under the hot sun with nothing. So much so that they're even going to whine about it and want to go back to Egypt. That's how bad it's going to be in the wilderness for them. But ultimately, what did God do? God gave them a future, and God gave them a hope, and God absolutely brought them into the promised land. It took longer than they would like. Can I tell you, in your life, some things may take longer than you like. They have in mine. I can tell you, a good chunk of my life has been lived. It's like, well, Lord, that took longer than I thought. Amen? For some of us who are a little bit older in this room, few things have taken longer than we'd like, amen? Like my own personal sanctification sometimes. Maybe it might be a discouraging way, maybe for you. 
But from the standpoint of faith, it couldn't be more encouraging. Maybe this seems like, oh, it's kind of a downer, he's dead. But it couldn't be more encouraging. Because it says, even when we face death, we face death with a God who's the God of hope. A God who loves us supremely, who has great plans for your life and knows exactly what he's doing and everything that he either allows or purposes and wills in your life. And in fact, we can prove that because Joseph is still a blessing to us today, isn't he? He's still a blessing to us today. There's no Jesus without Joseph. We look forward just like he looked forward. So I pray you'll be encouraged, strengthened, built up. Foundational book, the book of Genesis. It's been a blast. We'll be moving on to the book of Daniel, which is an exciting one, filled with all kinds of wonderful truths. And so we'll pick that one up next time as we begin a new book. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll pray. And we made it. We finished the whole chapter tonight. Father, thank you for this book of beginnings. Lord, this foundation that we've studied these last couple of years. How we are so grateful for your word and its power to transform and work in our lives. And we ask God that as we face our future, that we would face that future with the hope that you are good. And your thoughts towards us are good. They are plans to prosper and not to harm us. Lord, you know exactly what you're doing. And we commit ourselves into your hands. We pray for those that are tonight uh, even struggling maybe with brokenness in their life. Maybe a damaged relationship within their family. Perhaps there's something that just seems to be a weight that's too heavy to bear. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would be the burden lifter, the stone breaker. Lord, would you break the the yoke of bondage upon anyone, Lord, that's brought a weight in tonight that they've been lugging around for years. And so, God, we thank you for your goodness to us, the encouragement of your word. And we thank you for the patriarchs, Lord, these, these men, Lord, whose lives we've studied, these women whose lives we've studied. Lord, we think of Sarah. We think of Rachel. Lord, we think of Abraham and Isaac, Noah. Lord, a man who in the midst of great tribulation and a world turned mad was willing to stand for you. And we pray we would be like that. Lord, we dare to be different. And we'll see that in the life of Daniel. Lord, someone who was able to stand in the face of the most powerful king on the planet and say, I won't bow. Lord, make us into that type of people that are able with confidence to say we serve the true and the living God, we will not be moved. We bless your name and we thank you, Lord, for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.